I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. And I'm Rod Hill, FM News. Quietly, ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big show? Right. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live. And now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. We are about to spend $5 billion back to Oregon taxpayers because of the kicker law. That funding would have been transformational for every school district in Oregon. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. And that is Andrew Scott. And like most of the money-grubbing elected officials anywhere in America, let alone here in the Pacific Northwest, Andrew Scott wants to get his grubby little hands on $5 billion that by law and by Constitution must go back to the taxpayers of Oregon. And I want to talk about this because you're sure to hear about this in the upcoming legislative session. It only involves Oregon because only Oregon has a tax kicker law. Although, if every other state adopted one, I think it's a perfectly sensible idea. So sensible that people knew. They knew that the legislature and other elected officials like Andrew Scott and shame on him would go out and say, why, we could get that money. And if we got that money, we'd have all the money we ever need. You know what? I got a, I got a truism for you. Government never has all the money that it claims to need. But I can tell you this, they already have the money to do the job should they actually decide to do the job that they're supposed to do. Except that Andrew Scott and his buddies on the Portland Public School Board have screwed up. They just cut a deal to end a strike with striking teachers, and they gave them too much. And how do I know they gave them too much? Because now Andrew Scott, the same guy who said, why, if we could just get our hands on the taxpayers' $5 billion, we'd have the money we need. Portland Public School Board members have already admitted they need more money because they cut such a bad deal with the teachers. They promised them more money than the district actually has, and now the district may have to cut some positions to make up for that shortfall. Well, welcome to the real world, Andrew Scott. 
I'll talk about it more in a moment, but first, it's Conspiracy Theory Thursday. I'm glad to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network, and I'm glad to take your calls, too. At 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer on this, you think we ought to send that tax kicker of $5 billion or so dollars and just tell the government, spend it any way you want. Why, we're just floating on cash right now. I'd be glad to take your call as a naysayer at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and our Twitter poll, and I'll give you the details, more of them, on this a bit later on this hour. Should state elections officials remove Donald Trump's name from primary or general election ballots? I would say no to that crazy idea. The Secretary of State of Oregon while she has said she is not going to take Donald Trump's name off the primary election ballot, she's made a rather broad hint that she might just take his name off the general election ballot in November if he becomes the nominee. And I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. If you want to vote in today's Twitter poll, you can find it two places, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter or X. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. And the Twitter poll or X poll is always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at Ultimate truckservice.com. Now, let me give you a little history on the, uh, the kicker, because it is frequently misunderstood, but this is the basics. If you walk into a store and you say, I want to buy a set of snow tires, say you walk into Les Schwab and you say, I want to buy a set of snow tires, how much is that going to cost me? And they say, well, about $1,200. So, um, and I know you don't do business this way, but if you say, okay, here's the 1200 they come back and they say, hey, we were really surprised. It turns out that your snow tires only cost $1,100. And you say, well, then you'll be giving me back 100 of the 1200 that I paid you. And Les Schwab says, no, we're not. We keep the excess. You know, if we over-collected from you, we're not giving you back the excess. Now, do you know anybody in business anywhere in the real world that does business that way? Does an estimate of what the cost will be, which is what the kicker requires, that the state of Oregon says we estimate that we will collect this much money in taxes over the next two years. They do a biennial budget. It's a two-year budget. Then they estimate, and they divvy up, because they always plan to spend basically every dollar they take in. They say, if we're, we're expecting to take in $20 billion, uh, and we expect to spend about $20 billion. What the kicker says, the kicker law that is now not just a law, but it's in the state constitution because the public knew, rightfully so, that the legislature was going to be inclined to try to steal the kicker. So they said, let's put it in the constitution so it's extraordinarily difficult to take it away. What the kicker law says is if the state collects more than 2% above what it expected to collect, then they have to give the excess back. Now, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the kicker, I think in the 70s, it might have been in the 80s, um, the amounts they were giving back for the whole state, for millions of people, of taxpayers, was $80 million or $90 million. It was not gigantic sums, but the state has been over-collecting taxes so much lately that the new kicker is going to be right around $5 billion that must be returned to the taxpayers. So... All of a sudden, people like Andrew Scott say, well, you got to give us that money because we just went out and cut a bad deal with the unions. We were scared to death of the unions. They own us, don't you know it? And uh, so we promised them more money than we actually have. 
Do you know what we say about people who, are, who, who promise more money than they actually have? They're fools. I mean, if you have somebody who said, well, I'm going to have to turn the keys of my car over to the bank. Why is that? Well, I bought the car. I thought I could afford it. I really couldn't afford it, so I'm going to have to give it back. This is, this is the kind of thinking that runs government, where the Portland public schools in this case, although virtually every school district does this, they go out and they promise more than they have, and then they go to the voters and they say, oh my goodness, we're facing a crisis. We're going to have to lay people off. Well, why is that? Well, we promised more money than we actually had. We promised to pay more money than we actually had. So we're going to have to lay people off, unless, of course, you taxpayers are willing to give us extra money. This is the kind of thinking that runs some of the biggest institutions in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Do you want idiots like that running the situation where they negotiate deals based on money they don't have, knowing that they're going to force cuts, knowing that they're going to push taxpayers and parents and students right to the edge, threaten them with pushing the system over the cliff, and then say, but you can save us if you'll just give us some more money. This is insanity. It needs to stop. And this idea that they can go out and steal the kicker. In fact, in that soundbite I played for you, Andrew Scott does something incredibly arrogant. He assumes that if the tax kicker wasn't required by the state constitution to go back to the citizens who actually paid those taxes, that all, every dime of it would be allocated to education. Well, I got news for Andrew Scott. The state of Oregon does more than education. It has a budget. About 50% of it is education, but the other 50% are all the other things. And yet Scott makes the very broad and, I think, foolish assumption why if they just keep the kicker, they could give it to all the school districts. They'd give every dime of it to us. Watch out, folks. This is what's coming at you in the next session of the Oregon legislature. And if Washington State had a kicker, and it should have one, you'd probably face it in Olympia as well. Back in just a moment, it's Conspiracy Theory Thursday. I got a few thoughts about Joe Biden and his crazy e-cars coming up. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. America's Navy. Nixon was wrong about a lot of things, but he's right about this. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. What say you, Joe Biden? This is the Lars Larson Show. 
That makes a lot of sense. A lot of nonsense. Right. You're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. The wheels are coming off Joe Biden's plan to force electric vehicles on citizens in the United States who don't want to buy them. That's the bad news for a guy facing election 11 months from now, with the polls predicting that he's going to lose in a landslide. Joe Biden pushed the Congress to shovel out more than $7 billion to build electric car chargers across America. Two years later, two years after the money was approved, not a single car charger has been built. Then consider the revolt that's underway right now in America's automobile industry. The companies admit they lose tens of thousands of dollars on every single e-car they make. That's a problem. So the battery buggies have been piling up on car lots and in automobile showrooms. Now, 3,000 dealers this week have signed a letter to Joe Biden demanding that he back off on his bogus battery car plans. Ford Motor demanded that dealers go all in and commit hundreds of millions of dollars to buy e-cars on their lots that the public doesn't want to buy. 400 of those dealers just yesterday told Ford they're dropping out of the plan because their customers aren't buying it. That's always a good reason for a business to drop a plan. You have to wonder what Joe's buddies in Beijing, you know, the ones that pumped tens of millions into the Biden crime family over the last few years, what are they going to do when the president has to back down on his plans to turn our energy and transportation future over to his Chinese masters? Our question of the day is posed by Jim from Powell Butte listening on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars, about the debate tonight. Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis. Somebody needs to explain to me how in the world it's a good idea to debate somebody who's not running for any office of any kind when you're running for president. This has to be the dumbest thing DeSantis can do. What a total waste of time. It's a no-win situation for him. Jim, I can't disagree with you. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Find out right now. Well, today's Daily Grill, I'm going to award at the suggestion of the Taxpayers Association, who points out, does anybody think it's a great idea to increase gasoline taxes by 5% on January 1? Because that's what's happening. One month from now, Oregon gas taxes, which already went up in 2018, 2020, 2022, and now 2024, are going up 5%. And on top of that, on top of higher gas taxes, they want to add tolls as well. After four gasoline tax increases, that's crazy. Politicians will tell you the gas tax is not paying enough because of better fuel efficiency. But House Bill 2017 included a car sales tax, a bike tax, two auto fee increases, a, a truck tax increase, and a new payroll tax to pay for transportation. That is seven tax increases, gas tax, car tax, bike tax, truck tax, auto fee number one, auto fee number two, and payroll tax since 2017 that have raised $5 billion over 10 years for transportation. And the response by politicians is, we need even more of your money. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. We were talking about building housing, among other things, yesterday. Well, David heard that, and he wrote in, Lars, 
I bought an acre of land three years ago across the street from my land, and I got it septic approved. A year ago, I was notified I had 30 days to file a building permit or the land would not be buildable because it was part of a contiguous tract. My friend could build on it, but not me, because I own across the street. Let's start by stopping this kind of nonsense, and we'll get more houses built. I think David's absolutely right. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind today? Good afternoon, Lars. Since it's Conspiracy Theory Thursday... I would like to reference Thomas Massey of Kentucky, Representative Thomas Massey's recent amendment to try to get rid of the kill switch uh, part of the uh, car uh, for to kill switch all of our vehicles. That was part of the 2021 Build Back Better. And I want to call out the 18 horrible northeastern, terrible rhino, Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio Republicans that all voted against Representative Massey's amendment to stop a Orwellian New World Order takeover 1984 the capture of every one of our vehicles starting in 2025. Okay, I got to tell you something, John. I, I think you're off base. I hate to let facts get in the way of a good story. I've heard the kill switch story before. We've talked about it before. I can tell you where it came from, and uh, I can tell you how it got misinterpreted. And this isn't a small, nuanced interpretation. The rule that, that Joe Biden pushed through in the infrastructure bill is a stupid rule. And here's what it's, but it's not a kill switch for cars, you know, that say the police could, uh, or the government could say, we're going to turn a switch and all these cars won't start. The vehicle the, does it itself. Well, John, the vehicle does it if it decides you're impaired. Now, I think what they did in the infrastructure bill, just so we understand what they did, the infrastructure bill told the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to write up the rules that would, at some point in the future, require a passive switch to turn off cars. Now, I've talked about it on the air before. I think it's a stupid idea. I could Im imagine a thousand different ways for it to go wrong, and it's and it shouldn't happen. But they haven't actually created the rules yet, nor have they created the technology yet, uh, and what it would call for is for cars to passively monitor the driver. In other words, you're not blowing into a breathalyzer. You're not punching in a code. And then the car would, or the brain, the CPU in the car would decide if you're impaired, and then it would refuse to start the car. Like I said, uh, it's a dumb idea. It's, I think it's completely technologically wrong. And, and for your car to say, gee, Lars, you seem impaired. I'm just not going to operate really seems stupid. But when people have extended that to say, oh, that means the police could remotely turn your car off or the government, a government agency could remote your, remotely turn your car off. It is not that. Not we do understand that. Not right? yet. Soon. Not yet. Soon, though, right? Well, and, 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 and the day they decide to try to do that, I hope Americans absolutely revolt and say we're not going to do it, you know, or, or we'll take the switch out of our cars. There will be a cottage industry of mechanics taking those things out. But, John, one of the things that damages conservative arguments the most is when we take something and we suggest that it means something that it doesn't mean. And I've had too many people call me up and write to me and say they've got a remote kill switch for your car. And I say, no, they don't. And they say, well, they could someday. Well, you know, well, a lot of things I'm could happen I'm using the same someday. terminology that Representative Massey used in his amendment. I am? No, I am. 
He called it okay. a kill switch in his amendment. I understand because he and he got people's attention. Just make sure you don't overstate it. And do I think it's stupid to have NHTSA do that? Absolutely. Do I think I want my car to decide whether or not I'm capable of driving my car? No, I don't. Uh, if they want to do better drunk driving or intoxicated driving enforcement, I'm all for that. My mom got killed by a drunk driver. I, I don't like the idea of drunk drivers. I don't drive drunk myself. But having your car or a, a chip of silicon decide whether or not you're capable of driving your car, that's absolute lunacy. Coming up, we're going to talk about Oregon's failing paid leave program. And you got the Lars Larson The Lars Larson Show. Control explained. Want to stop drunk drivers from killing sober drivers? Ban sober drivers. That's how gun control works. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. I want to talk about this new program, a relatively new program that Oregon has for paid leave. I don't think that the state should be involved in this. I don't think it should be based on taxes. I've got a really strong bias against it, just so you know where my dog in the fight is. But then I hear from Becky Bima, who tells me, about some of the horrors of actually trying to access the paid leave program uh, when you're entitled to the benefits that come from it. So having said, I don't like the program to begin with. Uh, let's introduce Becky Bima. Becky, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time to hear my story. Absolutely, because when state programs fail, especially ones that involve lots of money and involve eff effectively everybody who works uh, and holds a job and might need to take paid leave, would you mind telling my audience what happened to you? Because you, you started applying way back in September. Correct. My, <clears throat> my son, um, I found him in ICU September 3rd. He was out um, in a coma, and he went in the first. So my work worked with me so that I could be at the hospital because there was a point in time we didn't think he would make it. Um, and then... Going through this process, because my employer has less than 25 employees, I don't qualify for FMLA, nor do I qualify for the Oregon Family Leave Act. So going through that process and trying to figure out what I was going to do upon his release, when and if that happened, I remembered that this Oregon paid leave was an option and the only thing that once I was approved that would save my job but also help pay for me to be at home to be his caregiver which that alone is a stress. And then now we have this, these issues with Oregon paid leave that's just causing me so much pain and hurt. And it's just not helpful. Well, let me, let me um, skip to the most important part, Becky. How's your son? He's at home now. We okay. have um, multiple appointments, was close to losing his legs, lifetime dialysis. But miraculously, by the grace of God, he is here and doing better. So that is a blessing, and I'm very thankful for the doctors at St. Vincent's. But, yeah, he's home. And so that part is fine. Now let's go to the, the more difficult part. You start applying September the 28th, and you would think, well, this is it's a program set up for paid leave, and, and many times this isn't for vacation. This is for paid leave for a reason like yours. Um, 
is are you still waiting for them to to actually uh, okay you for paid leave? Yes. Well, it got up. So I had to send in um, a total of five to six photos. Once the first time I got a hold of them, they said, "Oh, you need to send in photo verification." They said, "Well, that was never mentioned in the application process on your online portal, Francis." Okay, cool. Send in, email it to us, a selfie holding your driver's license and your social security card. So I had a coworker take a selfie or a picture of me. I email it in. Don't hear anything. So I email back. Don't hear anything. In total, I've sent seven emails and not one of them has been answered. So I call every single day with at least an hour wait time. They tell me, oh, nope, we haven't gotten it. So I send six more emails from my personal email of the pictures. They don't get it, and I won't let her off the phone until I know. Don't get it. Send another six emails from my work email. She doesn't get it. So then I'm like, can I upload it into your portal? I upload it. She finally gets it. Oh, give us about a week. This is all we need. You should be approved. Week goes now, when, by. When, was, when was that when she told you, well, give us a week? October 13th. Wow. Two months ago. Oh, a month yeah. and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do that. And then another two weeks goes by, and I get the one and only message from their portal after I've sent 11 messages on their portal that they need more pictures. Okay, this makes no sense, but I take, again, my Social Security and my driver's license, put it on my counter, send in the pictures. Okay, great. Now we're sending you a letter to verify that this isn't a fraudulent account. I said, so if it's a fraudulent account, you're mailing a letter to possibly a fraudulent address <laughs> of which I need to input a password. Cool, got that November 17th. Inputted the password, took a screenshot of the confirmation number they gave me. I called them immediately. Hey, I just inputted my one-time password, oh, yeah, it's been approved. Give us about two weeks, and you'll start receiving your payments. I have received one, and it wasn't even in order. It's paid out the week ending November 18th. I still have one, two, three, four, four weeks prior to that that are still in processing, and then this week now says suspended. So call yesterday. Oh, we're sending you another letter of verification. You have to input another password. I said, how many times do I have to verify this? I have my Oregon Real ID, which to go to the DMV, you have to bring three different pieces of ID, including my original birth certificate. How much more do I need to prove I'm in this? Rent is due tomorrow. I have no funds. I've tapped into my savings. Thank God I'm a person that saves. But now I'm in a situation where... I have medical supplies I have to buy, medications, driving my son to his appointments, at least two appointments a week that are all over Portland. And I'm just frustrated because it's not just my story, but stories I'm reading of people online that have actually been kicked out of their apartments. Um, I have a friend you that said, had a brain You said tumor. there's actually, and we, we looked at the Facebook page. There's a Facebook page full of people who've tried to mm -hmm. access this state program and and the system isn't working. And they don't answer their Facebook messages. They say, Facebook message, okay, cool, let me try that avenue. I did. And I get the generic, send us your case number, we'll look into it. Then they ghosted me. 
So between Facebook, email, and their portal, probably about 20 different messages I have sent, and not once have I ever been helped. Now tell me this. There's one other concern that you raised, and I think it's really important. You've now given somebody pictures of you, pictures of mm -hmm. your photo ID, pictures of your Social Security card, and you wonder, what are they doing to safeguard all of this? Correct. You just hear, what was it, last year that DMV got hacked. So there's a lady on their Facebook page. She had to upload her birth certificate, her marriage certificate. So now you've just compromised all of our identity. So when, because I know it will get hacked, and we're all compromised and screwed even more because now everybody has my identity and can go do whatever they want with it. And all of this for a brand new program, which you'd think they'd have said, listen, when we launch this program, we're going to make it as automated as possible. We'll have ways to confirm who people are, but, but we'll have a system worked out for actually handling it. And now the, the system doesn't seem to be capable of even handling the, the, the people who are doing it, who are using it now. Right. And here's my other concern. You can go get on unemployment and it takes about a week. You're not uploading these documents. You can get unemployment quicker and less invasive or food stamps even than this program. And it just baffles me because the paid leave is through unemployment. So how can somebody get unemployment in a week? But there's some of us that have waited. I'm nearing, you know, three months. Um, I have another friend that applied for this the day it opened and she still hasn't received payments. How, this isn't helping anybody. We're having to no, and you, you think they would have piggybacked money. on the existing unemployment system and said, if we've got a system, except I know they have problems with that thing as well. Becky, will you continue to stay in touch with us and let us know uh, if anything new develops, and we'll see if we can maybe shake the trees for you, okay? Right. We've got, I've got emails to the senators, uh, state representatives, all the news stations. I'm trying to make noise, not just for me, but for everybody else that suffering and hurting because of this. Becky, thank you very much. That's Becky Bima. Back in a moment, you got the Lawrence Larson Show. You probably with me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Be singing what I'm singing, but I'm just saying what you're thinking. This 
is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me on the Radio Northwest Network and always glad to take your calls. And I'll get to those calls. Then later I'll tell you about the Secretary of State and her veiled threat to keep Donald Trump off the Oregon ballot in November of next year. Today's Twitter poll question has to do with that. Should state elections officials remove Donald Trump from the primary and or general election ballots uh, we've already got the answer for the primary in Oregon, but there's a broad hint about what might happen in the general. So I would say no. The elections officials should not take a legitimate candidate. And if there's Donald Trump is nothing if he is not a legitimate candidate for president. He's the odds on favorite to win the Republican nomination and the odds on favorite at this point to beat Joe Biden like a rented mule. In any case, you can find the Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to John, first of all. Hey, John, welcome to Conspiracy Theory Thursday. What's on your mind? Hey, I had a question. Um, it's open enrollment, and we've just uh, applied for our health care. Apparently, I have to put down how much... I will make in order to get a certain premium. And then if True. I end up making too much money, I have to pay it back. Yeah, you, you'd have to pay the higher premium. It all has to do with Obamacare. God bless Barack Hussein Obama, you know, the great constitutional scholar from Chicago, who's now <laughs> worth about $100 million. The guy who decided that Obamacare was the way to go. The reason health insurance companies ask for your income is because depending on how much you make, you get either no tax credit or some tax credit or a whopping big tax credit to help you pay the premiums. And it's all dependent on how much money you make. But you're right. If you're a self-employed, as I, I'm guessing you might be, and you yeah. say, well, yeah. last year I made this much, next year I expect to make about the same amount, and then you make a lot more because you got some more, some extra work, then, uh, then they're going to screw you up some. Exactly. And, How is that? And, I mean, I would think it'd be based on my health. It's not. Well, know. except that when when they create a system and understand, John, I don't like Obamacare. I don't think that kind of subsidy is a healthy thing to do. And it's a stupid system. I mean, ultimately, Obamacare is about as dumb as a box of rocks because Obamacare says, well, which plan do you want? Most people will choose the most thrifty plan, the most, uh, you know, economically affordable plan. And then they'll say, oh, so you're going to pay 6000 bucks a year for health insurance, but you have a six or $8,000, uh, you know, deductible. And you say, well, hold on a second, $6,000. So I have to spend 6000 on health care before I get a dime of benefit? It would be it would be like buying car insurance and having the, the, the insurance company say, by the way, John, this is great car insurance. If you destroy your car, we'll buy you a new car. But if otherwise, we don't care, cover anything up to $5,000. You'd say, so basically, I'm self-insured. And the answer is, yeah, for the most part, unless you are really got something horribly wrong with you, you're self-insured. And you say, I'm paying $6,000 to be largely self-insured for health care. If that makes sense to anybody, you probably voted for a Democrat in the last election. Thanks for the call, by the way. Let's go to Dave in Longview. Hey, Dave, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. Nice to, meet, nice to be on the air. Long-time listener, first-time caller. So anyway, the, first, the one lady that was talking about the, this whole conspiracy thing over the Facebook and Instagram accounts and stuff like that, so I got completely hacked, and they're doing nothing about it. And like she was saying, she's got all my, or they have all my pictures. They have all my info. They have, they have everything. The guy called me and, like, talked like he was, like, 
Captain Phillips movie. It was like, you want your accounts back? And I'm like, whoa, what? And Facebook won't do nothing for me. Now, hold on. So they hacked your Facebook account and took it over? Yeah, completely. I can't even get into it. I can't get into my wow. Facebook. I can't get into my Messenger. And I can't get into my Instagram. Gee, and, and, and Facebook, and and Facebook does Facebook. not have good customer service. What a shocker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Let me go yeah, again. There, hey, uh, listen. That was it from that we, black lady that was talking about it, so I figured. Well, she, you yeah. know what she was talking about, Dave? Oregon created this new family uh, leave program. They're taxing all these people uh, for, you know, companies and employees for family leave. And then when she tries to file for it, and she files for it way back in September, and here we are on the eve of, of December, and she's still waiting uh, to get the family leave payments that she was supposed to get. The system, at, like most things run by government, is completely screwed up. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Dan in Tacoma listening on the great KVI. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind? Lars, another great program today, as usual. But, Thank you. Uh, we, we sure remind all your listeners that the Obamacare is so good that the Senate and the House exempted themselves <laughs> from it. <laughs> they sure did. Yeah, they absolutely yeah. do. And and so you know, the it, only ones that get that fine medical care are us peons out here. Can you imagine, Dan, if you owned a restaurant in Tacoma? And people said, well, how is it a nice restaurant? And you said, well, I don't eat there. And you say you own the place, but you don't eat there? What does that say about your restaurant? And then, like you suggest, what does it say when the Congress passes a law and then says, but we're not going to be held to that law. We don't want to be involved in Obamacare. We're, we're going to get some decent health care. It, it really does, isn't exactly the greatest recommendation, is it? It is not, and I want term limits yesterday. I'll tell you what, can we have term limits on politicians, but you know where I think it's more uh, relevant today? Term limits on the bureaucracy. What if we said you are not allowed to work in the federal bureaucracy for longer than, and pick a number, 10 years, 12 years, and after that, you have to go back to the private sector. We'll get some new people in, maybe some people from the private sector who actually know how to get something done. We'd get a two-for-one on that. You're listening to Conspiracy Theory Thursday. The Lars Larson. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you, your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen, you ready for the big solo? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. And now. Then we're going. 
crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to Lars Larson. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're live on the Radio Northwest Network, stretching out to every state in the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, a network of 26 stations, and I'm glad to have you with me. I'll get to your phone calls shortly. But I want to talk to Will Lathrop because uh, Will should probably know I have a dog in the fight. I think that for far too long, the attorney general's office in the state of Oregon, I live in Washington, but I'm still affected by decisions made by the attorney general's office in Oregon. One of the largest attorneys general offices in America. I mean, I think the total staff is around 1,300 people. Thank God they're not all lawyers. But, Will, welcome to the program and, and tell my audience why you want to be Oregon's next attorney general. Hey, thank you so much, much for having me. So my background is I'm from Eastern Oregon, and I, and I came to Willamette Valley to practice law. I was a child sex abuse prosecutor for a number of years here in Oregon, then went and did that kind of work at, in Washington, D.C., and in Washington, D.C., I was asked to lead teams in Africa to rescue child slaves and prosecute slaves, traders, and masters, um, both in, in Africa and in um, the Middle East. And I've always had a residence here in Oregon, so I come back every summer, uh, for a month or two, and just watching the frame-by-frame frame, um, death of a state each year I came back was really difficult. So it's never really been in my game plan to run for public office. I've loved being a public servant, but Oregon needs fresh leadership and needs an attorney general that's focused on the actual problems in front of us, which is crime, addiction, and just uh, government overreach. Okay, and from my point of view, the attorney general's office is currently run by Ellen Rosenblum, who is one of the most partisan political hacks I've ever run into. Now, you may not want to go there, but tell me, how would the <laughs> Attorney General's office run differently under Will, Will Lathrop if you become AG? Now, so much of Ellen's focus is that it has been directly on political issues, and it's more of a quasi-judicial uh, position that should be nonpartisan in nature. And so you can count on me as someone who... There's a, you're right to say it's a huge budget and a huge staff, and you can count on me if somebody's going to reroute those resources to the burning fires, which are crime, addiction, homelessness, and a runaway bureaucracy in the state of Oregon. Um, and that'll be my focus, not on, on uh, political issues or national issues or things that uh, the state attorney general shouldn't really be involved in. I'd like you to comment on this, Will. Uh, Oregon has its share of scandal. And the scandal at the early part of this year ended up with the ouster of a corrupt sec Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, who was effectively pushed out of office and replaced by somebody else, uh, you know, who we've talked about as well. But, but she, you know, you have this scandal. You have politicians taking stacks of cash in brown paper bags. You have uh, members, now a member of Congress, who appears to have been bribed as Bureau of Labor and Industries Commissioner, but is now a member of the U.S. Congress. All of them Democrats and a governor who, who got elected on illegally obtained monies, money, a half a million dollars in illegal money, which they had to pay back. Um, but but the, the current attorney general seems to have no interest in going after that stuff at all. And it, it, it's hard not to see the political tinge to that. It's madness. Um, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Oregon's been a single-party state for a while right now, and you're seeing the fruits of that. I lived in Africa. I know the downstream effects of corruption, and it just completely debilitates the entire um, uh, social infrastructure of a country. People don't trust the government. Um, everything fails. And so we're on that road, and there's a real need for the attorney general to do their job, which is to investigate all allegations of public corruption and hold people accountable. And I have a zero tolerance 
for people who misuse their office for their own their own personal gain. If if people want to help you out in your campaign, where can they find your website, uh, social media, and that sort of thing? Yeah, thanks, Lars. So my my website is willwaythrop.com. So it's just my name, Will W I L L L A T H R O P dot com. Let me go back to the comment you made about a single about single party rule, and and I appreciate the comparison to Africa because Africa is notoriously corrupt as well. But is there any good legal reason why the attorney general could ignore apparent corruption in office like what we've seen just in the last you know ten months? No, I mean the short answer is no. It's it's unconscionable. In fact, the FBI has been investigating. Uh, Shmia Fagan, and it seems like the Attorney General's office has been slow to produce uh, subpoenaed records and is almost frustrating that investigation. It's just a problem of, of collusion at the top, um, and that collusion has led to impunity, and that punity, impunity is um, really damaging people's respect and trust in the government. What else would you do with the Attorney General's office? Because I know it's not the kind of office that necessarily generates the greatest number of headlines in any given state. Yeah, you know, we have a fentanyl crisis right now, and fentanyl's not made in in the U.S., but it's coming to Oregon uh, in droves because we've essentially become a drug depot state because of our, our ballot measure 110. That's, and the attorney general has an important role in investigating organized crime across the state. It sort of a, runs a hub or, or a central figure that connects counties and cities with the federal government and other state agencies to build a strategy and push resources where they're needed to take on organized crime, and that's what drug trafficking is, is organized crime. And people are making millions of dollars off of crushing families and crushing communities right now, and our Attorney General has failed in her response to that. Failed. You know, it's, it's funny it's like that you mentioned that. Turned off. Yeah, you mentioned that because within the last two years, we talked to a sheriff from Southern Oregon who found a victim of human trafficking, a slave. And the slave had been effectively worked to death, he was near to death. They drop his body off. He dies. He died anyway, even though they got him to a hospital. And the sheriff began investigating. He said he found a gigantic marijuana plantation being run by one of the cartels with more than 100 human slaves there. And I thought, well, okay, this is a big enough deal that you'd think you'll see some kind of major actions from, from the Department of Justice in the state of Oregon if you've got actual slavery being practiced in a state and human trafficking of people uh, to, to, to create illegal narcotics. And it's, it's like it's crickets instead. Yeah, human trafficking has exploded in the state of Oregon. Um, and human trafficking, drug trafficking is one of those crimes. It's like a pillar crime. When you have drug trafficking, you have human trafficking, you have organized retail theft, violence, vandalism, theft of all kinds that come with addiction. And in order to deal with all of those things, you have to pull out that central pillar, which is, which is drug trafficking. So you can count on me as someone that goes after that. I prosecuted human trafficking before I left to go to DC and, and, and before I went to um, to Africa, and I've come back to a completely different state. It is so much worse. The sex trafficking, the narco trafficking, it's almost unimaginable what the state looks like eight years uh, later. I just can't, I can't believe the failure of leadership that I've come back to. Well, I hope that you can get the votes. I mean, Oregon's a tough state, especially because I don't think the election system is necessarily legitimate, and I don't think it's necessarily if the ballots are being counted legally and lawfully, and, and if there was ever any, uh, well, there, there's another area. Last 30 seconds. What would you do about concerns we have about whether or not Oregon's elections are run legitimately? And is that in your lane, even though it's also in the Secretary of State's lane? If I were a Democrat, I would want people talking about how the elections are rigged and how it doesn't really matter on the right side because then nobody will vote. 
Um, I think it's really important right now for people to focus on what we can do, and what we can do is we can get out and vote, and we can monitor, and we can really push to, to use every legal means necessary to get a strong vote, voter turnout in 2024. The Secretary of State controls voting, but if the Secretary of State does something illegal, you can, you can count on me as an Attorney General to show up and talk to you. I appreciate that. That's Will Lathrop. You can find him at Will, W-I-L-L, Lathrop.com. He's running for Attorney General in Oregon, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. In today, the groundbreak. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. He may talk about serious issues, but even Lars has a sense of humor. I have a joke for you. The government in this town is excellent and uses your tax dollars efficiently. <laughs> this is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, I want to talk a little bit about health care. Because I read something today, and it was written by a doctor. And he's actually an MD, so he's in family medicine. Uh, and he's pointed out that there are a number of ways that the healthcare institutions, hospitals, doctors, and the rest, are gaming the system in a way that drives costs up at the same time that politicians are telling us, and they're right, that one of the biggest challenges America has right now is a gigantic increase in the cost of health care. But let me get to that in a moment. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer and you disagree with me, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. We put up a brand new question written from the news of the day every day at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. Twitter, uh, and also on our website at LarsLarson.com. So this doctor is Dr. Josh Umber. He's a, an MD in Wichita, Kansas. And he's actually pointed out something that I wasn't aware of, and I follow healthcare issues about as closely as I think I can. He wrote at Real Clear Healthcare, but he says, we've got a problem. He says, the United States is facing a healthcare affordability crisis with inflation, get this, likely to drive costs up by 6.5% next year. 
Now, if you thought they weren't high enough already, another 6.5% just next year. And he says, while Americans worry about the rising cost of medical care, many of the underlying causes of high prices are overlooked. Bad government policies, especially Medicare reimbursement policies, uh, are fostering an environment of consolidation, leading to higher prices that hurt everybody. So in other words, who's to blame for some of the health care increases? You can blame the doctors, you can blame the hospitals, but in this case, Dr. Umber is pointing out that it's government that is driving the cost higher. Now, Medicare, I'm not on Medicare, so I don't have a dog in the fight, but Medicare accounts for about 25% of all the health care expenditures in the entire country. And they cover a population that, because older Americans have Medicare, typically they use the system a lot. Individuals over 65 are only 17% of the population. They are 35% of all health care spending. So they're basically punching above their weight by about 100% and then some. So he says the structure of Medicare requires the government dictate the prices it will pay as well as the out-of-pocket co-pays that patients have to pay. Now, to, to do that, he says Medicare ought to focus on patient care and reimburse doctors and medical practices the same amount. You say, well, don't they pay the same amount? And the answer is no. And I, this is the part I didn't know about because I don't, I don't go that far down the rabbit hole. He says Medicare bases reimbursement on the type of provider. So in other words, if you go to a doctor's office and you get a certain kind of medical care that's provided for you, and then you go to a hospital and you get the very same kind of medical care provided at a hospital, when the patient gets medical services from a facility owned by a hospital, Medicare reimburses at a higher rate than if the, the service was provided at private practice. So in other words, the system is biased against standalone doctors or doctors in private practice. It is biased in favor of these major institutions. And what seems crazy, when I read that, I thought, well, that seems crazy because if anything, if you're a hospital, you get certain economies of scale. You want to know about what economies of scale are? Look at Walmart. When Walmart can go out and buy 10,000 of something, they get it at a better price than the store that buys 10 of them. So economies of scale are that. You've got a major institution. It has all the medical tools. It's got various different departments for you know treating different kinds of illnesses and ailments. It has a steady stream of people coming through. A standalone doctor's office is not that. It doesn't have the major institution. It doesn't have all the medical tools available to it. It doesn't have the economies of scale where you're treating maybe thousands of patients in a day, where the average doctor may treat a few dozen patients in a day. So you'd almost think that the hospitals would get lower reimbursement, but I suspect that the hospitals have better lobbyists on Capitol Hill. So what he points out, he says it creates an unintended incentive. Actually, I'd call it a moral hazard. If a hospital goes out and buys a private medical practice, then that private doctor's office will be considered part of its outpatient department. So in other words, the minute the hospital buys the doctor's office, the amount of money that the, the provider gets for a given service goes up simply because it became part of the hospital and the Medicare reimbursement rates are higher for hospitals. In one report to Congress on Medicare, they said in recent years, the number of services billed 
in, they're called HOPDs, hospital outpatient departments, has been increasing, while the number of services provided in freestanding offices have been declining. Now, if you've ever had that, you know, the, the reaction of saying, hey, I, went, I, I want to get an appointment with my doctor. Well, he's too busy. It may take three or four or five weeks. Okay, you have to go to the hospital, to the emergency room or to urgent care, one of those places. Instead, it's pushing patients away from standalone doctors and pushing them in the direction of these hospital outpatient departments. Uh, what he suggests, what Dr. Umber suggests, he says Congress should mandate that Medicare implement site-neutral reimbursement. In other words, if you're doing a particular medical treatment of a patient, you get paid the same whether you're a hospital or a standalone doctor's office. Site-neutral payments, he says, would remove the incentive for hospitals to buy up all these small practices and keep health care costs from rising. Understand that if you've got all these standalone doctor's offices or a doctor's office that, has, say, has two or three doctors who practice together as a group, well, the hospital has an incentive to buy that practice because then they can get the patients that go with it and they get the higher reimbursement rates. But what do you get when you get on the phone or you get online and you say, I want to find an, an appointment with a doctor, you know, a doctor who doesn't work at the hospital, you find, well, they're, they're diminishing. There aren't as many of them anymore. And you end up stuck with going to the major institution where the costs are going to be higher. And what they've estimated is that changing this and saying it's it's neutral you get paid the same amount whether the service is provided at a standalone doctor's office or at a hospital because it would reduce incentives for hospitals to acquire physician practices and bill for services under the usually higher paying outpatient provider fees it anticipates medicare beneficiaries would be better off under site neutrality a 2023 study said if they went to this, just one change, not in doctors, not in pharmaceuticals, not in hospitals, but in the government, in Medicare. If Medicare changed the way it pays for services, it would result in a $231 billion savings, almost a quarter of a trillion dollars over the next 10 years, and $152 billion in savings for patients, all totaled. 400 billion per year, 4 trillion over 10, or uh, 4 billion, 400 billion over 10 years. This is what's crazy. When the government says, we're here from the government to help you, <laughs> and then they say, we're going to screw the system up even worse than it is already. Glad to get your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll or X poll uh, at Lars Larson Show. And you're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. vegan actually is? They say cows are bad for the environment because all they do is eat plants and fart, just like vegans. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's been too long since I've talked to our friend KT McFarland, former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Trump, but someone who also worked under the now late Henry Kissinger, who passed away at the age of 100. We got the word of that last night. KT, welcome back to the program. Uh, I'm sorry for his oh, passing. but. I wanted to get your, oh, it's not an honor, it's just I, I get to pick your brain on the smart stuff because you're the smart <laughs> one. Um, but 
But tell me this, KT McFarland, by the way, you see her on Fox, you see she's written a number of books. Um, but I want to know your view of, of Kissinger. Should we view him as, let's see, Chris Hitchens thought he was a war criminal, uh, and others have suggested he was the savior of the modern world and pulled America's bacon out of the fire in, uh, in the 70s. Well, he was actually my first boss. I don't know if you know that, Lars. I started working for Henry Kissinger when I was a freshman in college as a nighttime secretary in the White House Situation Room. So I've known him for my, well, for 45, 50 years. He was first my boss for seven years in the Nixon and Ford administrations and then became a mentor as I went on to graduate school and other jobs in the Reagan and and, and other administrations and, um, and finally became a very close friend. Um, I think that his legacy is mixed, as you say, but it's a weird legacy because the left doesn't like him because they're so mad about the Vietnam War, which Kissinger um, negotiated the end of. The left didn't like him because he he negotiated a solution that was a good solution from the United States perspective. The right doesn't like him because he had a detente with the Soviet Union and arms control agreements when the, the right says, well, we should have defeated the Soviet Union or Kissinger wasn't tough enough on the Soviet Union. And then people today say, well, he was too soft on China. I think put him in the context of his time. In the 1970s, he came into office in 1969. The United States was just a few years away from the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm -hmm. where we almost went to a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. So for Kissinger to pursue a lessening of tensions with the Soviet Union and arms control agreements, that was a pretty good thing to do. We were not in a position to defeat them in the Cold War as we were later in the Reagan administration. And as far as China, I think, again, it was the right thing to do in the context of the time because China was going to modernize and enter the, the big world somehow or other. And better that they did it with us than, than doing it with the Soviet Union. Our whole goal since the end of World War II is to divide and prevent a China-Russia alliance because that's very difficult for the U.S. And that's what Kissinger broke. Nixon helped him. Reagan did it finally. And, of course, now that Biden has welcomed in a Russia-China alliance, which is very bad for the U.S. Yeah, it is. And, in fact, we're in, we're in really tough times right now because we've got a president who's managed to get us into, well, I guess now three potential conflicts, uh, Ukraine, uh, ongoing uh, Hamas and Israel, in which Joe Biden doesn't seem to be nearly uh, 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 nearly anti-terrorist enough by, you know, by, in my book. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's, there's China and Taiwan uh, that, that may be in the offing because Joe Biden has projected American weakness. Yeah, and it feeds on itself. You know, if our adversaries sense weakness, hesitation, dysfunction at home, a weak leader, as typified by Biden's very physical presence, what do they do? They think, well, this is our time. Let's go after them. And if the United States is, okay, so we just got out of, of Afghanistan, that was a, a, just a just a disaster in every which way. And then all the other countries of the world saying, hmm, maybe this is our moment. So Russia, Putin invades Ukraine. So China, China's working very aggressively towards Taiwan. In the Middle East, the bad guys led by Iran and Iran's money, let's go after Israel. And the whole tragedy of it is it's so easy to fix and it's so just the Biden administration just refuses to do it. In the Trump administration, we understood that American energy and developments and advances in American oil and natural gas 
and fracking gave us the ability to be the world's energy source. We have enough energy in oil and natural gas in the U.S. to power the world for hundreds of years. And we can do it cheaper and better and safer than anybody else. And we were well on the way to doing that. It was terrific for our economy, and it bankrupted the bad guys. Russia, bankrupt during the Trump administration years. Iran, bankrupt. China, dependent on U.S. energy, potentially on U.S. energy advances. And yet, Biden comes in, reverses it all, and where are we? As you just pointed out, potentially three wars around the world. I'm talking to former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Trump, K.T. McFarlane. Um, so, K.T., back to Henry Kissinger, uh, who's passing yesterday. I, I, I read about it, I, you know, at 100 uh, even even people have written about seeing him in his last weeks or months uh, said, you know, they knew he wouldn't be around for uh, forever. Mm -hmm. um, why did he play such a signature role in American foreign policy for for basically for 50 years? At first, he did as national security advisor in the Nixon and Ford administration. And I do think that was a golden era of American diplomacy, opening to China, Vietnam peace accords, Middle East peace arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. But I think that what happened after that is even more significant in a lot of ways for the last 50 years, is that Kissinger, because after he left office, he didn't just fade away. After he left office, he continued to go around the world and, and talk to and work with foreign leaders. So he became the most important back channel of any leaders in the, in the United States and the world. You know, if the president of the United States can't say everything he might want to say to the prime minister of Israel or to the president of China. But a Kissinger could say those things unofficially. And I think he played a very big role in assuring the Israelis that we were behind them and telling the Chinese leadership, well, do worry about that, don't worry about that. And then he was able to come back to the U.S., to the presidents of the U.S. and national security advisors, Republican and Democrat alike, and say, look, this is what you ought to watch out for. This is what the Chinese really need. So I think he's played a very important role in, in world diplomacy in the last 40 years, and one whose absence will be greatly missed, particularly as I think we enter a scary time with China. Is that why he was accept his advice was accepted by both Republicans and Democrats? Because you don't see a lot of, of major league political figures who are, you know, they're either on one side or the other side, but they don't talk to both sides for the most part. And you're absolutely right. And, and the thing about Kissinger is he would never endorse a candidate, Republican or a Democrat. He'd never endorse in a primary election. But he always said, and, he, and, he, and something that he's, told me and others that we should do is always be open always be anybody who wants your advice give them your advice uh, doesn't matter which party because at the end of the day it's america's foreign policy and foreign policy should find an agreement within the in the united states leadership we don't we don't ever seem to but we should and could well since you were his friend kt i'm curious what did he make of the abraham accords and about the potential that president trump said to americans there's four more treaties we could get but it'll be dependent on what Joe Biden does. And, of course, it sounds like Joe Biden just basically kicked that whole idea to the curb, that he didn't want them, even though Trump had mm -hmm. been more successful than most presidents in getting things done in the Middle East. Okay, so Kissinger understood that in the Middle East, the key to peace and prosperity, the key to prosperity was peace. So in the first Yom Kippur War in 1973, when the Arab countries all invaded Israel, and Kissinger was called by Golda Meir, who was the... Prime Minister of Israel at the time, you know, how can you, how can you help us? Can you give us weapon supplies? Can you conduct some diplomacy? And Kissinger understood that there had to be a leader in the region 
Arab leader who was willing to find a, a way to peace, and that was Anwar Sadat. So Kissinger had shuttle diplomacy between Israel and Egypt, and in a given day, he would go, he spent more than a month in the Middle East, where in the morning he would be in Israel, and in the afternoon he would be in Egypt, and then the next morning he would be in Syria. And he worked with all those leaders to find a ceasefire and a way to peace. That was their goal for peace and prosperity. The Abraham Accords, similarly, is the goal of the Arab countries now. Egypt has already has peace with Israel. But the Gulf Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, they realize that their only only pathway to peace is, is prosperity, and that would be, again, peace with Israel. You're absolutely right. That's KT McFarland, former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Trump. KT, thank you very much. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. You got the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you're in an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. At least someone has a plan for illegal aliens. Back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we've served the Pacific Northwest states. As of a month from now, we'll serve Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for 24 years on the Radio Northwest Network. And if you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, uh, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our X poll or Twitter poll, should state elections officials remove Donald Trump from the primary or general election ballots? I would say no to both of those. And yet that that very thing has been proposed in a number of states. And for the most part, judges have said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're not taking Trump off the ballot. And it shows you the level of desperation that the Democrats have. They have no candidate of their own unless you consider Joe Biden a worthy candidate for reelection, or unless you think uh, Kamala Hamas, the vice president, is a good candidate for reelection, or unless you, I guess, are waiting for Gavin Newsom to come out of the wings and decide that he's going to do it. But let me tell you what the Secretary of State just did. This is the Secretary of State, Levon Griffin Valade, who replaced the corrupt Shamia Fagan. Shamia Fagan had to resign in the early part of this year because she was corrupt. She was taking $10,000 a month from LaModa. 
and the Lamota weed folks, you know, the weed, the marijuana uh, retailer, they were they were funding tens of thousands of dollars to multiple candidates, including the governor, Tina Kotek, including Shamia Fagan, uh, including $60,000 that went to one of the newest Democrat members of Congress and uh, Val Hoyle. And she announces today she will follow the usual procedure and will not remove Donald Trump from the primary election ballot. But then she throws down what I saw as a very broad hint of what she plans to do, perhaps, in the latter part of next year as we head up to the election in November. Oregon law, she says, does not give me the authority to determine the qualifications of candidates in a presidential primary. I will follow our usual process. However, Secretary of State's office, in a press release today, said that decision only applies to Oregon's primary election, does not apply to the November general election. Now, that's where you catch the first hint. And then what she says is, I understand that people want to skip to the end of this story. That's a reference to the November election next year. But right now, we don't even know who the nominee will be. Well, unless you got your head buried in the sand, you understand it's going to be Donald Trump. Who's going to be there on the Democrat side? Who knows? I mean, I, I seriously doubt Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, but it could happen. I mean, I'd, I'd love it because Trump's going to mop the floor with Joe Biden. The current polls say he, he'll beat him by nine or ten percentage points. But then listen to what she says. When the general election comes, we'll follow the law and be completely transparent with our reasoning. Now, I don't think you can catch a broader hint that what she's saying is, I don't have the legal ability to remove Trump from the primary ballot, but boy, when it comes to November, something different is going to happen. And she says, we'll follow the law, well, duh, and be completely transparent with our reasoning. In other words, I would anticipate that the current Secretary of State is planning to pull Donald Trump off the general election ballot for November. She doesn't have to do it now, so she's not going to do it now. Will she do it later uh, in 2024? Probably in September. They have to print the ballots by about then because the ballots go out three weeks before the November election. So she has to make the decision before they print the ballots. But watch her try to rip Trump's name off the ballot. I'm just telling you, be aware that's where she seems to be headed. Anyway, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. This segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com. Go to NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showings, no hassles. You pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. Now, I want to tell you about something I've been planning to mention to you for the last couple of weeks, and that is... It now appears that one of the Democrats' newest taxes and most hated taxes in the state of Oregon uh, is the cause of the demise of a big part of one of the region's most beloved industries, and that is the craft beer industry. I mean, Oregonians, whether you drink beer or not, are usually proud of the fact that you've got McMinimans and you've got all these breweries and you have thousands of people, literally thousands of people who are employed in making craft beer. Well, guess what's happened? Last year saw zero sales growth. This year is seeing about a 2% decline, and that's a problem. So consider, why is that happening? I think it's happening, and my friends at the uh, uh, Oregon Taxpayer, the Taxpayer Association of Oregon, uh, have, have said this as well. It's Oregon's Corporate Activities Tax, which has only been in place since 2019. So it's been around for four years. And if you wonder what the cat tax is, I think a lot of Oregonians haven't realized it's out there. It is a sales tax. And here's what it says. On all of the 
corporate activities, the company is told it must pay the cat tax uh, on its gross revenues. Now, I don't want to sound like a tax accountant or anything, but what that means is if you go out to start a brand new business, and let's say the first year in business you bring in a million dollars, but you have to spend $1.1 million on expenses that first or second or third year. That's true of many businesses. Guess what? The cat tax is going to apply to the million dollars you took in. And if you say, but we didn't make any money. We lost money the first year, the second year, the third year. Doesn't matter. You have to pay it. So what's happened? Ecliptic Brewery has closed multiple locations, sold off their rare beer archive, three breweries closing in Eugene, wave of breweries have shut their doors or plan to close. The Oregon Brewers Festival just closed for good because of declining customers and rising costs. In other words, the cat tax killed the beer. Uh, the beer the Lars Larson. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you ready for the big show? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live. And now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Conspiracy Theory Thursday. Our Twitter poll today, and this one applies specifically to the state of Oregon before we talk about some Washington state concerns. Should state elections officials remove Donald Trump from the primary or general election ballots? I would answer that one no. Uh, there have been a number of liberals who are just desperate to get Trump off the ballot. And it kind of tells you something. I mean, I think Donald Trump should take that as a compliment. When they're, when they're so afraid of you that they don't even want to let people have the opportunity to vote for you, that tells you how well you're doing and how well whoever the Democrats pick as their nominee, I don't think it's going to be Joe Biden, it, it tells you what they think of his prospects for actually winning an election. The Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. It's also found at LarsLarson.com, and it's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, I have to tell you something. My dog in the fight. I don't think much of the Washington State Supreme Court. And I don't imagine that Chris Corey does either. He's director of the Center for Government Reform at Washington Policy. Chris, welcome back to the program. Hey, good to be with you, Lars. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, is there a pattern out there uh, that, that might relate to who's on the Washington Supreme Court, who gives them campaign donations, and what the decisions, uh, what kind of decisions are produced by the Washington State Supreme Court? That's an excellent lead-in, and I will tell you, I know a lot of your listeners and yourself have a gut feeling that it leans a specific direction that is not uh, to the right, but rather to the left. And now we have data that actually shows that, courtesy of some analysis done by Ballotpedia. And what did they find? Because the overall findings were pretty dramatic. I mean, I'm not expecting 99% liberal decisions and 1% conservative, but it's, it's, it's pretty markedly to the left, isn't it? Absolutely. So the, the study really showed two interesting findings. One, uh, donations from significant sources, so think $1,000 or more, for winning candidates in um, Washington State Supreme Court elections were, uh, were classified by Ballotpedia, which is an independent, you know, nonpartisan group, as uh, progressive, while on the flip side, that's, excuse me, 99%, whereas on the losing candidate side, 97% of those were conservative. And it, and it trickled down past that to actually decisions. They saw uh, almost a 75-25 favorability towards progressive cause issues from those candidates versus a 15-85 on the flip side. Uh, for conservatives in terms of losing and winning elections, so or cases, court cases. So markedly different, um, and it clearly shows a huge bias in how uh, Washington State Supreme Court is obviously funded for its elections and then how it governs from the bench. Well, let me ask you this, because it, it makes me inclined to, to say, well, should they be getting campaign contributions at all? And And I say that because most of the positions we vote for uh, when we go to the polls or when we vote our vote by mail ballots, we're voting for people we fully expect to be political. And yet we now have Supreme Court justices who are supposed to decide things based on the law, the federal constitution and the state constitution. Should those people be political at all? No, they should be ruling based on what the actual law is. And we've seen some recent decisions that show um, that they're they're using politics at the bench. I think the most recent one you and I have discussed is the capital gains tax decision um, that they ruled on earlier this year, where in a 7-2 decision, they just ignored uh, the property clause in our Constitution um, and said for political reasons why it needed to happen uh, and why they supported it, which is obviously wholly different than interpreting the law as written. Is there any way to actually fix this short of simply saying we want to make this a nonpartisan position? Because even in nonpartisan races, I mean, there are a number of offices that are nonpartisan, and yet the people still act like partisans. Is there any other better way to fix this situation, or should we just accept that the, we're stuck with a Supreme Court that's going to give consistently progressive or liberal decisions on virtually everything and undercut everything that's done by the voters at the polls on initiatives and under, undone by uh, state lawmakers in Olympia? No, I, de I definitely think there's some ways for improvement. Um, obviously, um, we're one of a handful of states in, in electing our Supreme Court justices this way. One thing in the Policy Center recommendation we have is that we amend the Constitution to allow for representational districts that elect Supreme Court justices. Right now, um, of all the, the members sitting on the bench, one is from Eastern Washington. And the only reason that member is from Eastern Washington is because they were appointed by the previous governor, Christine Gregoire. Other than that, they all tend to come from Seattle, 
and the Seattle area and the old adage of, you know, you can you, all the votes you need to win, you can see from the top of the Space Needle, seems to ring through here as well. <laughs> well, and, and so uh, you're right, but if you did it by based on representation, it'd still put a majority of them west of the Cascades, wouldn't it, because of, of, because of population? Or would it be geographic? That's I, I would think you'd probably have to make it proportional to population, uh, potentially geographic. You know, th that, which brings up the next point in all of this is that you really need a better understanding of the jurisprudence of these justices. And one of the areas that I know groups are actively working on ahead of the 2024 election is actually uh, a, a judge scorecard so that people can know, right? Because when you see a Republican or Democrat, you have a general idea of, you know, where they fall on certain positions. But with a lot of these judges' races, and it's not just limited to the Supreme Court, um, it goes down the line, you don't really know what they've done. It's not something that people are able to research easily. So that's another area of recommendation is making sure we have data out there that so people can actually look up and see kind of how this person uh, running for a judge uh, rules from the bench. Well, in fact, Chris, because... You know, I, I was thinking about that for a moment because I, I hadn't really thought it through before, but there's no reason it couldn't be geographical representation, is there? Because you can't do that with with state lawmakers because they have to represent about the same number of people, and you can't do it with members of Congress because each member of Congress is supposed to represent roughly the same number of Americans, seven or 800,000 per member of Congress. But with the Supreme Court, no one of those people is supposed to be representing any particular area or any particular group. They're all voting on whether or not, you know, to, to uphold, you know, to, to uphold a particular decision before them or to reject the decision. Is there any reason they have to all represent the same number of people? It doesn't seem to me, and it sounds like you're giving me more work to do, which I appreciate. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go do some more research on that. But, um, I, I do think that it would make sense that you would want people from around the state that understand the various interests of the state because um, when, you, when you're talking about complex issues, whether it's, you know, water rights, wolves, so on and so forth, you need to have uh, judges that understand the issues at stake and that aren't just beholden to uh, a certain mindset or a certain political area in the state. Well, I'll tell you what, when you consider the change, I'd love to have you draw one up that's purely geographical. Is there any reason that just because the Seattle Metro has half the state's population that it should have, have half the Supreme Court justices because they control the greatest number of votes? They're not there to represent. They're there to look at the law and the Constitution. That's Chris Corey, director of the Center for Government Reform at Washington Policy. Back in a moment, we'll talk about the Democrats who steadfastly deny that Joe Biden has done anything, anything. Untoward at all. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. 
So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com. View the videos and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. A message from Lars. I'd like to apologize to anyone I've not offended yet. Please be patient. I'll get to you shortly. Who's next? This is the Lars Larson Show. There's not a scintilla of evidence that Republicans have produced to show that President Joe Biden has engaged in wrongdoing, an impeachable offense, or in any way has broken the law. Isn't that amazing? Hakeem Jeffries, reliable Democrat from the left who's a member of Congress, who says there's no evidence whatsoever. I mean, these folks, in the next 11 months or so, I would warn you to expect that Democrats are going to do everything they can to simply say, you know, I'm putting my hands over my ears and I'm going to say, la, 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 I'm not listening to you. Because if you may understand this, in the last year, we've found out so much more about what Joe Biden and the Biden crime family have been up to. As a member of Congress put it to me this week, a year ago, we thought the Biden crime family, or we could prove that the Biden crime family had received a million dollars. As of today, we know the Biden crime family received at least $24 million from foreign companies, foreign countries, foreign sources of all of that money that it was being paid from places like Ukraine, from Kazakhstan, uh, it was being paid from Moscow, uh, it was being paid uh, from Beijing, and it was being paid through illicit means, and we know more about that today than we knew about it just a year ago. And there's no guarantee, in fact, I think it's fairly certain that over the next 12 months, we're going to find out even more. They have bank records, they have emails, Calls, photos, texts, visitor logs, sworn witness testimony, all of which says the Biden crime family for years engaged in peddling influence on behalf of Joe Biden for the benefit of Joe Biden and that some of the money went to President Joe Biden. We've got just mountains of evidence right now and more on the way. Let me get into the details on that, but first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you disagree with that, if you say, well, Joe Biden, he hasn't done anything wrong, so his son got $24 million for not doing anything at all, well, that shouldn't matter. Even if his son and his brother were writing Joe Biden checks in one case for 40000 one case for $200,000, and that those checks were written within days of the Biden crime family operation receiving millions of dollars from places like communist China, why, that doesn't connect to Joe Biden at all. If you want to be that kind of naysayer, I'll put you right to the head of the list at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the daily question every day from the news of the day at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. But Hakeem Jeffries, now, he says that President Joe Biden is a good man. Listen to this. 
President Biden is a good man. He's a good and decent and hardworking man. And that's been his entire life. Uh, excuse me, but Joe Biden has never had a real job in the private sector, not once. He went to college. He came out of college, got into politics. Uh, he ran. He has been in the U.S. Senate for decades. He was vice president for eight years. He's now been president for about three years. I mean, you can see the damage around America that's been caused by Joe Biden. And why? Because the Biden crime family is beholden to a lot of foreign governments. For example, just this week, the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, Chairman James Comer, he's a Republican from Kentucky, he released an email from a bank uh, from a money laundering investigation. And this was happening five years ago in 2017. This bank investigator said, I've got some concerns. There are these huge amounts of money, in one case, $5 million, that was transferred in from China to one shell company, moved to another shell company, moved to another shell company, and then the vast majority of it, about $3 million, ended up in a law firm that was owned by, guess who? Hunter Biden. And then he also showed the $40,000 check that Joe Biden signed his name to that was written to him by his brother James, uh, James Biden and, uh, and his sister-in-law, Sarah Biden, in the form of a personal check. And the money that landed in Joe Biden's bank account, it came through all these complicated financial transactions that, in, uh, uh, that eventually led to him. I mean, it went through all these little companies called Hudson West 3 and Hudson West 3 sent it to Owasco PC. Um, and then Hunter Biden wires $150,000 to another shell company owned by the president's brother, James, and his sister-in-law. And then Sarah Biden withdraws $50,000 in cash from the Lion Hall Group and deposits the money into her personal checking account on the very same day. And then the next day, they write a check to Joe. I mean, they didn't, they, they did make efforts to try to hide what they were doing, but they weren't very good efforts because once the bank records got subpoenaed, we found out this is how the money flowed into America and this is how some of it ended up in Joe Biden's pocket. I'd also suggest to you that at Joe Biden's age, because age does come into this, Joe Biden lives in multi-million dollar homes. He's got a few of them. He's got a solid source of income. As a former president, he'll get a very generous pension. He'll also get a pension from his decades in the U.S. Senate. So he's not worried about money. So in some cases, can you end up bribing a guy by just sending the money to other members of the family and then calling things loans? That's the kind of scam that just seems so totally dishonest to me. And here's why. In one case, Hunter Biden gets $5 million dollars except the Chinese company that gave him the $5 million called it a loan. You know, this seems like such a transparent attempt to get around reporting to the IRS or explaining what the money was all about. If you take a loan from somebody and say you get $5 million, but you understand nobody is ever going to ask you to pay the loan off. Nobody is ever going to ask you to make payments on the loan. And how would anybody outside, absent a subpoena, have any idea that you had been loaned $5 million? And when you say, well, when do you have to pay that loan back? Effectively, never. And then when checks are written to Joe Biden, one of them was a $200,000 check, but it's labeled as a loan repayment. So in total, Joe Biden, who makes, uh, well, as, as president, he makes more money now. 
but as as a senator, he made relatively modest money because senators get paid less than two hundred thousand dollars a year. Now it's a lot of money for the average person, but you know when you're maintaining the kind of lifestyle that Joe Biden lives, uh, that you you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars you're loaning, and. What's really tra- is crazy, and what this bank examiner pointed out, is that he saw this money labeled as loan repayment to Joe Biden, but there were no loan documents with it. Meaning, you're paying off a loan of hundreds of thousands of dollars, in one case tens of thousands of dollars, for which there's no paperwork at all. If you say, well, it's within the family. It's a way that somebody could say to the IRS, why, I didn't receive any income. I only got some loans paid back, really. Where are the documents that go with those loans? Well, they're loans within the family. So inside of any crime family, I'm sure that money gets loaned back and forth all the time without any loan documents or anything else. When you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars, does anybody buy that? Doesn't that sound like the purest kind of hogwash to you? That Joe Biden says, don't pay me the money, just tell them you're paying back a loan. And that's how we'll explain it if anybody asks. Well, it sounds like Joe Biden's in trouble and his Democrat friends are running around like Sergeant Schultz saying, I see nothing, nothing at all. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Musical message to anyone who wants to indoctrinate our school children. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter or X poll at Lars Larson Show. And join me in welcoming Steve Malloy, former member of Donald Trump's EPA transition team and founder of JunkScience.com. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great, Lars. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you something. There are times as a reporter, and I still consider myself a talk journalist, an opinion journalist, when you say, no, no, the facts couldn't be that clear cut. Because usually there are complications around the edges. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is Congress allocates $7.5 billion to build electric car charges, which is being done, you know, in, by, in other programs. It's being done by private companies. It's being forced on developers. I mean, they're building car chargers in a lot of places. They allocate $7.5 billion, two years goes by, and not a single car charger gets actually built and installed. It can't be that clean, can it? Why not? Welcome to the government. <laughs> yeah. No, look, uh, you know, Joe Biden got the inflation reduction package passed last year, and there were some, you know, legislation before that, and, and Congress was just throwing billions and billions of dollars at this climate stuff. And uh, if nothing else, it's just literally too much money for just a handful of people to spend. I, You know, uh, the person in the White House responsible for spending this money is John Podesta, and, of course, John Podesta is not interested in building EV charging stations. He's interested in getting Joe Biden elected in 2024. So he's got to spend the money in places that's going to help him the most, which has got nothing to do with EVs. You know, that whole inflation reduction package, the $369 billion, um, you know, uh, politicians call it walking around money. 
<laughs> it's just money you hand out to your friends to vote for you. It's that, got that, yeah, to that used to be the term they'd use when they go yeah. down by the polling places back in the day and say, "Here, here's five dollars of walking around money, but just yeah. remember who to vote for when you go in and mark your ballot." Back in the days when we actually marked ballots at polling places. Yeah, yeah. So none none of this money is um, earmarked to improve anybody's life or improve the climate or anything like that. It's it's all just political spending. So am I surprised? To find out that seven and a half billion have been allocated and not a not a station has been built, no. <laughs> well, it's kind of what I expect. But Steve, here's what struck me as really strange: when you read Politico Pro, actually broke the the story. Uh, I I don't know if you had it ahead of them, but I know they had it yesterday, and they said a couple of things about how. Number one, they they were you know sort of uh, delegating it. They were saying we're going to send it out to the states, then the states will get it done. Well, if they agreed in 2021 to spend the money. And seven and two years goes by, two and a half years goes, or two years at least have gone by, and and they haven't built a single one, even though they sent the money to the states. But the states, I guess, in most cases, haven't even started to issue the contracts to say build this with the money they've been sitting on for some time. But the other piece to this that I found really bizarre, because it's it's almost counterintuitive to if you actually want people to use electric cars. I'm not a fan. I don't think they're ready for prime time, and I don't think the government should be involved. I want exactly the same number of electric car charging stations as we have government-subsidized gasoline or diesel stations, which would be zero, other than the ones on military bases. So, um, but they said, we're going to build them, and you can see the politics in this. We're going to put them in rural areas. And I thought, hold on a second. Most of the people who live in rural areas who have to drive long distances, and I have a lot of friends in that case, aren't, uh, they're going to be the ones who stay away from e-vehicles the most because they say these don't meet our needs, especially the ones that have farms and ranches and have to tow equipment with pickup trucks and things like that. You say they're definitely not going to want an e-vehicle, and we're going to spend them in in uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods and i said oh you're going to go put a car charger into a neighborhood where the people are least likely to have the money <laughs> to spend sixty five thousand dollars on an electric car so you're going to put the yeah. electric car chargers where they're least likely to ever be used well lars none of this makes any sense uh, it's why all republicans opposed uh, all this legislation um, it it because it, it, it has nothing to do with Getting people in EVs, it's all just about... Huh? You know what? I think we dropped the connection with Steve. I just heard it go. Had, uh, Joel, can you double-check that connection? I think Steve's cell phone may have given up. But let's check and see if we can get him back. Because I think he's right. This is all about politics. It's saying $7.5 billion. Can we use that to maybe get Joe reelected in that unlikely event? That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, it does make sense that it would be spent on politics. But if you spend the money politically and you say we're going to put the money in the rural areas where people are least likely to own one of the electric cars, we're going to put them in urban neighborhoods or disadvantaged communities, uh, places that have high numbers of, of people who are at low income, and you really expect that those are the people who are going to be buying an electric car, and need to car charge it somewhere near their home, instead of actually saying, and this would be the way to do it, say, let's go out and put the car chargers where they are most likely to benefit the greatest number of people. The problem is, for Joe, politically, that doesn't work, because it doesn't, do any, it, it doesn't allow him to pad the pockets of the people who would get those contracts. Steve, sorry about the lost connection, no but, but tell me this. So, so what ends up happening to this money? They're just going to 
like most government make-work prog- uh, programs, they're just going to blow this money. It's not going to actually benefit too many people at all, uh, but it might, it might help Joe Biden in election time. Yeah, this money is going to be spent to get Biden reelected. Um, unless, unless Congress claws it back, I mean, there, you know, I think about 80 billion of this, uh, of the, uh, of this money has already been spent, so there's a lot more to spend. Uh, unless Congress claws it back, it's just going to be wasted by John Podesta on behalf of Joe Biden's political prospects. Um, it, you know, this, it, this is just, it's terrible. We're, we're, you know, stealing money from taxpayers, borrowing other money from China, and it's all just for political purposes. It's got nothing to do with improving anything. See, but I would think that even if all they were trying to do is convince people we're, we're all in for electric vehicles, yeah. how hard, I mean, if you told me, Steve, Lars, here's some money, I know you don't like car charges, but if you can get one installed in your front driveway, I'll bet I could find a company that would sell me a car charger, maybe even the commercial variety that can take payments and things like that. This isn't rocket science, is it? Well, for them it is. Um, I, I, I can't explain why they're, they're so incompetent. Uh, but they are, and I'm not surprised. I mean, they have. I mean, look, look at who is uh, president and vice president of the country, for God's sake. True. That, <laughs> now that. we we imagine there's somebody in charge. Are you kidding me? Well, the other piece I wanted to ask you about, Steve, because I noticed a pattern. You got three thousand auto dealers that sign a letter saying, "Back off this stuff. This is going to be trouble for us." You got the automakers that say we're losing thousands or tens of thousands on every single e-car we make and sell because they're not selling for what it costs us to make them. And then you had four hundred Ford dealers who just said, "We're dropping out of your e-vehicle program because it's 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 a loser for us. We're not going to do it." And they told, you know, Ford Motor, they, they're telling the company that makes the cars they sell at the Ford dealership, we don't want any part of this. This sounds like the wheels are starting to come off. Well, I think you're right. Um, you know, this is, EVs are going to go down in textbooks as a classic case of failed industrial policy, centrally planned industrial policy. Nobody wants these things. They cost too much. They're inconvenient. There's no demand. The government is... Um, you know, forcing them down, forcing de- forcing car dealers to sell this stuff, forcing car companies to make them, dealers to sell them. It's not working out. Uh, you know, EPA's got, Joe Biden has got this whole mechanism in place to basically ban gasoline-powered cars by 2032, uh, but nobody wants the alternative. So what's going to happen? You know, Ford lost $36,000 per EV last month. Unbelievable. 36,000. Every single one you make and sell, you lose 36,000. And Joe Biden says, I know, we'll sell twice as many and make it up in volume. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. 
So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com. View the videos and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. People always ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. This segment of the show brought to you by the home power generating folks at Protect Power. Make sure your loved ones are safe when the power goes out. 541-ONA-GEN. That's called 541-ONA-GEN. Am I going to be watching the debate tonight with uh, Gavin Newsom, who's not running for president, at least not yet? And uh, Ron DeSantis, who's running for president but not exactly winning, uh, I don't know. And I, I see people saying, "How's how's DeSantis going to beat Newsom?" I said, "How's the presidential candidate going to who's not going to get the nomination going to beat the guy who's not running for the office at all?" I don't know. We've arrived in truly strange times. Let's go to David, who's a naysayer. David, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about? First of all, thank you very much for taking my call, Mr. Larson. I'll get right to my point. I think uh, talking about EVs, I think you talk about them in a vacuum too much. They uh, they live in our economy. Uh, if you look at car sales in and of themselves, car sales have been cratering. I have a friend who works at a car lot who can't get rid of Chevy Silverado to save his life. He has over two years on inventory, and he's been marking them down trying to offload them onto other dealers. It's just the market in and of itself for cars is cratering, not just EVs. Well, I don't think used car sales are down 4%, but I don't think that's it. The new car sales are still around 14 million, and electric e-vehicles are about a half a million. Guys, of I'm just saying, it, you, can, you can look at for numbers that support arguments and stuff like that, I'm just saying, what I'm seeing no. is people are having troubles just dropping cars off lots. No, I, I understand that, but here's the problem. The inventories of e-cars used to be, it was tough to get one on, on the lots a couple of years ago. It's tough to get one. Now, they have, they've gone from 30 days of inventory to 60 to 90 days of inventory, so much so that the car dealers are saying to the manufacturers, 3,000 of them signed a letter saying, look, we can't sell these things, even with the subsidies, even with the push. They can't sell them. They can't sell cars, though, right now, in and of themselves. It's not just EVs. No, but, but, a, no, like, like, but none of them is signing a letter saying, please stop making gasoline and diesel cars because we can't sell them, because they are still selling. In fact, David, last year, Ford Motor Company lost $2 billion. Now, you say, well, that was on both EVs and gas. No, they made money on the gas and diesel side. They lost money on the electric side. The net, the net result was $2 billion in a loss in a single year it, it for a major a, company. It takes, a lot, it takes a lot of money to adopt a new technology. You're having gasoline internal combustion engines on the end of their technological tree when you're picking Why up Why are they the end? David, I'm curious. Why do you say they're at the end? We have an abundance of the fuel that runs them, and we don't have an abundance of the fuel that runs e-vehicles. Uh, because, okay, so you're, you're, you're conflating two different things. They're at the end of their technology tree. Uh, internal Why? No, are what do you mean? That, 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 we have the... Well, no, but David, I'm not understanding. I, I, I'm fine-tuning the question. I'm fine-tuning the question. 
We have an abundance of the fuel that runs them, and, and gasoline and diesel-powered cars have never been as technologically advanced as they are today. Why do you say that's the end? Uh, you've got to define for me what, what marks the end of gasoline. Internal combustion engines are utilizing almost like 90% of the energy that's being produced from the explosion of the gas in and of itself. Yeah. You can't get more energy out of them. Well, I, I, but why dull. is that the end? I mean, I have a knife that cuts that cuts food, and it will never be sharper today, you know, than the knives were a hundred years ago. Does that mean that knives are coming to the end of their technology as well? They they are, but there's not there's a finite amount. They are. We're going to stop using knives and only be allowed to have spoons. Oh, is there a finite amount of oil? Uh, no. Yes, there is. Hold on, we're, David. You're, we're can I can I remind you? Jimmy Carter is still alive, the worst president of the of the of the twentieth century. He said in the seventies we would be completely out of oil by the nineteen nineties. Are we completely not, out of oil? Am I Jimmy Carter? I'm not talking to, about Jimmy Carter. No, but you're saying to me where we have a finite amount of oil. Can you tell me how you prove that? Because the because there's only so much oil on this planet, it's not going to produce more. Like you know, you don't you know how long do we have oil? enough oil to last for the next? Okay, let me uh, let me try a question back at you in to, in aid of an objection. Do we have an abundance of oil and gasoline sufficient to last this country the next couple of hundred years? That's not my argument. No, I'm no, I, I, no. Hold on, you, you said there's I'm a finite amount, don't. but I, I'm just. Do we have an abundance of electricity right now? I didn't say we have it. Oh, we, yeah, we can have an abundance of electricity. No, we don't have an abundance. They are shutting down coal. They're shutting down dams. They're not going to allow nuclear. They're not going to allow us to use natural gas. So you have wind and solar. Do we have an abundance? And why did a report come out last week right before Thanksgiving that said 50% of the country is in danger of blackouts because of grid instability? We don't have enough of electricity we've had feeding the system. Our whole life. There's been years, there's been times which we've had blackouts in New York City, we've had blackouts in LA. No, we had one major, we had two brownout. major blackouts in New York City and they were because of mechanical failures, not because we ran out of electricity. We, we are blackouts in LA all the time. They used to call them brownouts. They were no, commonplace. David, do you understand? I like it. They've made, they have made us as short of the one fuel you want to use to drive the cars that these that people are not buying off the dealer lots. No, okay. So see, we we've conflated. We went from oil and electricity to cars to like these. They're these all related to each other, David. If you have an abundance of oil to run gasoline and diesel trucks, and you say we're going to give up that technology, that one's outmoded. But we're going to go to electric, even though the country is on the verge of losing its electric grid. And you want us to go to that as the fuel? David, that's crazy. The Lars Larson. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? 
then go to iraadvantage.com. View the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.